Welcome, welcome, welcome back to another episode of Two Confirmations. We are the Buck Brothers. My name is Paul. My name's Chris. And today we wrap up season one. What can we come to expect uh, come season two? There's this underlying theme that I think we, we can pull out just like an onion of uh, why Bitcoin? That may seem like an easy question, you know, at least for us, like, oh, because it's great, because we enjoy it, <laughs> right? Because it, it's going up. Um, but I think there's a, a, quite a few different points to pull out there of uh, why you and I have become fascinated with it, all of the different facets of Bitcoin and why we think it's going to be around to stay. And, uh, you know, that it's a good store of value, that uh, it's going to change uh, society, change our culture. So um, we, we want to dive in and discover that, but also want to do some interviews and ask other people, why do they think that Bitcoin might fail or might succeed and get other people's viewpoints and pull it out from them? Um, because, uh, the, you know, some of the aspects of why are uh, the adoption. So it's other people coming to believe that it will be valuable as well. So I'm excited to uh, continue on in season two with you, Paul. All right. And then as we wrap up season one, we are actually going to uh, present um, a conversation that we had at a recent talk at the University of Arizona. And it really does encapsulate what we've been communicating in these initial episodes about decentralization and understanding maybe the underlying, not philosophy, but the underlying principles about what makes this technology different which was actually sparked by a message I received uh, from a, a friend who reached out after we shared the podcast, who says, hey, I'm working on this project, I'm doing a, a video for them, and I wanna, for a blockchain company, and I wanna understand what makes this technology revolutionary. And of course, my first response, and, and as we talked was, well, it, it depends. You know, not everything is revolutionary. We, we've if you're tuning in today or if you've tuned in in past episodes, we've talked a lot about decentralization versus centralization. Um, and today we're going to dive into a framework that we found uh, to be very, uh, not just appealing, but very simple and straightforward uh, about how to maybe take everything that we've been talking about and kind of put it into a framework. And, and Chris, maybe you can share what that framework is. Is. Where, where, are we, where are we coming from today? Yeah, uh, so I remember as we've uh, talked about things and you and I would get all excited about uh, you know, a project and then we'd be looking at that project, maybe it's you know, uh, Hedra Hashgraph or you know, Grin or you know, anything that would come out and be like, oh, this is so cool, they're doing this. And it'd be like, well, what's different about this from Bitcoin? And so the, the guiding question is, um, how can we th think critically about blockchain projects and what their use cases is? Uh, and so we've got this uh, awesome model that we've you know, come across. And uh, I think it really, uh, for me, it's distilled what matters about these projects and how can I think very quickly about what will differentiate them. All right, so let's jump into it. In the show notes, you'll see a link uh, to an image and uh, as well as to our talk, uh, but it's about uh, what's been labeled the blockchain trilemma. And it's this idea that, at least as, 
at the current time, you can have two of the three, you know, this, this idea of choice. And, and the considerations are decentralization, scalability, and security. And I'll let Chris, you know, go into the, the notion of finding the sweet spot. Uh, but for us, it really was, wow, these three components are really what it boils down to when you really do, do come to discover and think critically about, about a project. Yeah, I came across a, a quote that I still don't remember who said it, but uh, the quote is that there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. And I, I love that. I think it's brilliant because um, it, it's really showing that uh, for any system or even just the choices in our life, you know, it, we have to choose between like the speed of something or how much is it going to cost um, versus like the time and effort that we, we put into it. Um, and so that's also true for, for these blockchain projects. Um, so, uh, you know, as we take a look at Bitcoin, it is unique because it, I believe that it does a really good job of finding these trade-offs and finding a sweet spot in between all of them uh, for its use case. And then others have, uh, will, will flip to other sides of, you know, it'll, uh, other projects will have other two of three of these um, factors. So if you're looking at uh, the diagram or if you're reading along in your own thoughts, think of a triangle and, and you've got it uh, as a trilemma. And so you, again, you've got scalability, decentralization, and security. So oftentimes we come across a project and be like, hey, it's a thousand times faster than Bitcoin, but it's not secure. Or it's very centralized with one validator or one node uh, controlling the whole network. And again, as we dive into this very specifics of each one of these, that presents its own problems. Or it doesn't present anything new and different than what already exists. So it's maybe not creating new problems, this is not solving uh, anything. So let's dive in. The first one being decentralization and why that matters and where you can be on the scale of centralized not being uh, centralized. First aspect is being permissionless. And for us, this is critical because uh, of the user perspective. This idea that in a permission network, uh, think of whether it be a bank or whether it be um, like PayPal, where you have to be from a certain country in order to have access. Think of permissions as being um, anyone can participate, anyone can be involved, anyone can buy Bitcoin, anyone can transact Bitcoin. There is nothing that says you are not allowed or you are allowed uh, in a very simple way. It's permissionless. And, and in that sense, there's no single authority saying you can or cannot be uh, involved in using the network. And to us, that has great power, again, when you start thinking about um, other aspects we get into in terms of censorship resistant, but just that very simple, everyone has uh, permission uh, or the network is permissionless uh, to be able to use it. Yeah, and, and even another aspect of permissionless is the next point, which is that it's a distributed network. Um, and so you don't have to have permission to be a validating node on the network, right? Which is the la that lack of permission, right? And so to put that into more uh, just normal terms that we're used to, if you think of Wells Fargo, and I always pick up Wells Fargo as a bank, sorry, Wells Fargo, uh, then you, um, if you think about when money settles, uh, and, you know, so you've got branches all over the country and every night they settle. 
well, who can actually set up a branch? Well, only Wells Fargo says, okay, this branch, and then they have computers. So when you walk in and you deposit money, um, you know, it's added to that computer at that branch. And then every evening, the, the branch, you know, pools it all together, right? So, but that's permission. That's all, uh, you know, y y nobody can just like have their own computer in their room, be, be an ATM or be a uh, teller's computer adding to that ledger, right? Whereas with Bitcoin, um, anybody can go out and buy a Raspberry Pi and uh, have a node on the network. And as it often is, as we talk, I start to understand things further myself. And the same type of thing, who benefits from that process? Wells Fargo. In this case, everyone, you know, everyone who chooses to be a validator, um, if we're t talking about the Bitcoin network, you know, everyone, you know, the, the transaction fees are distributed. Um, that is not just a single source. Uh, and so you can think of decentralization in that way in terms of what's the benefit uh, of not just having a single source. It's the distri distribution of wealth. Uh, and, and even in some ways. Mm -hmm. Take that one step further and the ability to have that distributed network leads to being uh, censorship resistance. Uh, so if that's important, not just from a, um, a central authority, but from free, a free speech perspective, um, when um, your capacity to either move money or to use technology or to have access to uh, things that uh, are resources that you ideally have available to everyone, if it can't be controlled by a central authority such as a government, they can no longer then censor you or threaten you or cut off access. And that comes a very powerful thing when it comes to, um, especially um, in countries that you think of like uh, China, um, where your ability to speak out about human rights or certain things that you feel you're passionate about but may not want to because you run a business and you don't want your, uh, your funds or your capacity to, to utilize a bank uh, be threatened by, by, by your choice to exercise free speech. Absolutely. And uh, part of that censorship resistance uh, also leads to the next point, which is uh, democratized consensus. Uh, there, there's a few points with this, but um, I think of it as uh, the who controls the network so like who's voting on um, network upgrades or i just had this weird picture of going into circuit city and their uh, point of sale systems were all running on dos and somebody in corporate was like no we want to save money so we're not going to upgrade our systems and so you know of course circuit city isn't isn't around anymore today right but i can remember going into this place and like buying a laptop and here's this antiquated POS. And I'm like, who is the person that made that decision that this like supposedly like, like uh, you know, techno place is using this like horrible technology? Well, that's some person making a decision, right? Well, in Bitcoin's case, uh, it's everybody that's running, um, you know, mining, uh, like mining pools or uh, mining hardware uh, is helping to, to decide on the network as well as uh, all of the core programmers are uh, making those decisions, but it's no one person behind it. Um, and they all have to, you know, if, if one Bitcoin um, core developer said, hey, uh, we want to integrate this new piece of technology, uh, they'd have to get consensus from the other people. They'd have to get, uh, you know, some of the other uh, core developers uh, involved, so. Then the last component of this is redundancy. 
and this idea of, uh, as you're going to see here, these all start to inter intertwine with security and scalability. But this one really is, a, is an aspect of being distributed. You have copies everywhere. At, or the more decentralized you are, ideally, the more copies uh, you have. So in Bitcoin's case, again, as a standard, uh, has thousands of copies, not all over the world, but even in space. So the idea of uh, when we get into security, um, you know, there, there's a power outage in one, one place, or if there's um, one copy here and it's going to be hacked, you know, there is no central point of failure. Wait, wait, wait. Are you saying that aliens are currently validating Bitcoin blocks? Is that what you're saying, Paul? In space? Do you mean on the, the dark side of the moon? Oh, that doesn't exist. What do you mean? Yeah, you know, you know, you see those Lambos floating out in space. <laughs> the, the Doge dog uh, is validating. I think someone said, you know, there's uh, it can even survive a nuclear fallout. Now, again, you know, there's probably bigger things to be worried about. If there's a nuclear fallout than than money. But <laughs> but just the idea of, of having that record, having that um, public ledger uh, doesn't have that single point of failure. Uh, there, there's multiple copies. The more decentralized it is, the more copies are going to be. Well, but, but that really is a great point to measure projects on. Um, because one of the possible criticisms of Ethereum right now is that it's mainly being run on AWS, on Amazon Web Services. Uh, and whereas Bitcoin, because of the way that it, it can be validated with these Raspberry Pis and on different types of computers, um, and it's not as big, yeah, I, I don't want to go too crazy far into this, but just because of the way that it's been built. And so as you look at other projects, that's one way, one thing to think about and to look at is, um, you know, how, how distributed is the redundancy? So now we move into scalability. And this is not necessarily the most fun one, but it's the most fun one people love to talk about. They love to say, oh, this blockchain's got a million transactions per second, or it's going to be a thousand times faster than Bitcoin. And on the surface, it's like, oh, that sounds appealing, right? And a lot of the, 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 the scam coins and, uh, and a lot of the projects that you hear trying to either make a name for themselves really do say, hey, we can compete with Visa or we can, um, uh, you can run your application on us and it'll be able to work. But what are the trade-offs? What does that really mean? And for us, we want to really help you again think critically about, hey, if it goes faster, how does that impact the security or, or, or its centralization? Um, but for you to help understand what are those factors to kind of look into and, uh, after covering the decentralization aspect of it and the value of having a decentralized network, how can you be decentralized and get faster? And, that, and that's something that we'll always continue to, as we dive into projects, get to share our perspective. But for you to think about um, the first one being transaction speeds. Now, this one really is just on a pure level of how fast is the network? How many transactions per second can happen, whether it be uh, in Bitcoin's case of, of transactions, you know, um, submissions or payments, peer-to-peer -peer, um, uh, transactions, or um, a, a dApp, um, an application running on a blockchain that isn't using a centralized server, but is rather using the blockchain itself. How fast is the application? And of course, that comes into it. It does become important because you talk about users aren't necessarily going to care about the back end or hey, I really care about decentralization, and that's why I'm going to use this really slow application. 
they're going to care uh, in terms of adoption. They're going to care about how fast is this running. Uh, when I click uh, like on a decentralized uh, social network, does it take 10 seconds for it to load and, and to process, or is it instantaneous? And so it really is a um, issue to be solved um, in the blockchain space, but can it be solved in a secure way and in a decentralized way? And that's kind of the, where we're at today at the crossroads of, of compromise or, uh, again, no, no real solution, only trade-offs. But uh, transaction speeds is that first aspect that a lot of people really do talk about when it comes to scalability. Yeah, you hit on some really great points because uh, this is one of the, the areas that Bitcoin has purposely chosen to not be amazing at. So, you know, the transaction speeds uh, or the, the network throughput, really, uh, it can only do uh, seven to at a maximum around 15 transactions per second, which is pretty slow. Um, and that's why they're designing other, you know, what's called layer two solutions on top of it to uh, kind of centralize it on a micro scale. So there's lots of little centralizations um, to, to speed up smaller transactions. Um, but if, yeah, if you have a store of value, uh, maybe you don't need to have tons of transactions per second, um, but you want to have it secure. So the, the network throughput, um, it's how many transactions can happen per second. Um, and uh, you know, Bitcoin has consciously chosen to, to not do as many. Um, whereas other projects are really fast and not every uh, project needs to be decentralized, right? Some things, you, you know, like if you were building a social network on, on top of a, a uh, you know, a blockchain project, maybe speed is the most important thing. Um, and so you design it in such a way where it, it validates every second, you know, because, you know, the users are going to jump off quicker. And so you, maybe you don't care as much about people attacking it or you, you design some other attack resistance around it. Um, but yeah, uh, scalability uh, when it comes to these projects is, is something to look at. And one of the unique approaches for some projects being launching on the main network is bootstrapping. Um, and that means that they start off um, fast, but they also start off very centralized with the goal of on-ramping and, and building up a distributed network and building up more validators and building up trust and building up um, enough um, security so that the, th the throughput can remain high, that, there, that the, the user experience does uh, uh, remains, uh, in this case, uh, at a, let's say, a, a high quality or a, 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 good, a good user experience, but it takes time to, to maybe build up the network or it maybe takes time to bring on user adoption. So um, the bootstrapping network, Zilliqua was one that's recently going through that process of saying, hey, we, yes, we're, we're, we're choosing to be centralized at the moment, but that's to make sure we are attack resistant. That is to make sure that um, everything's running smoothly, the codes, you know, there's no glitches in the early going, that um, to bring on more users um, we are first going to bootstrap the network. And it's kind of a unique approach. So again, when you think critically, don't say, hey, this present moment, it's bad. It's saying, where is it going? And if they're always going to stay that way, yeah, that's something to be aware of. But look at if they're bootstrapping, if they're growing, um, or which direction they're going. Yeah, another element of scalability would be the cost of participation. Uh, and by participation, you can think of it from a user perspective. 
Um, you know, so it would be like, how long does it take to validate? Or, um, you know, the, the cost of the fees. Uh, you know, I was playing around with uh, Bitcoin the other day and it cost $1.50 to send it, which was high compared to like what it's been in the past. But um, so uh, that, that's one aspect is looking at from the user. But then also uh, thinking about the validators, a project that comes to mind is EOS, where they're doing a distributed proof of uh, state consensus. And um, so they only have 21 validators. So it's not, uh, you know, not anybody can become a validator. And, um, and the cost to run each of the machines is crazy. I, I don't remember uh, the, the details per month, but um, it, vaguely I feel like it was around 50000 to $100,000 per month to be running a validating node for EOS. And so when the, the, the payout that they get to run it, so the, the, uh, the fees, at one point weren't equaling what they were having to pay to just run these servers. And so if you think about like running a, a, a you know, Bitcoin mining node uh, or Bitcoin uh, mining hardware, you know, if, if it costs you more to run it than it does to, to earn the, the transaction uh, fees, you're gonna turn it off, right? Uh, and so that's, that's another element to look at is how much does it cost to participate in the network from a user perspective, but also from a validator perspective? I think too, we've talked about the cost of participation being you know, the education it takes to understand the project or to set up a node. I think a lot of times I'm like, hey, this is really cool. And you're like, all right, let's do it. And then I'm like, well, this is way out of my league to be able to participate. Whereas you're able to go, okay, I can, you know, I know what computer we need to order. I know, you know how to write the command, command lines. Um, so in the early going, if you're talking about scalability or in terms of user adoption and really growing a project, there really are some a lot of obstacles to be overcome. Or maybe the obstacles are there for a reason, again, you know, from a bootstrapping perspective or just making sure the network is, is run by people who are willing to invest that time and resources uh, into being involved. Well, you, you say that, Paul, but I have two lightning nodes uh, sitting at home. They're uh, HC2 droids. Uh, that have not been configured because I'm not as good <laughs> as I thought I was. Uh, it's just beyond my reach and I just haven't spent the time. But, but it, it is, I mean, I'm having to go in and do Linux command lines on these uh, headless computers uh, in order to get uh, you know, a, a lightning node the way I was trying to do it set up. Now there's other more centralized, easier ways to do it. Uh, but yeah, that, that is another cost of the, the network. Funny you should mention that because the last aspect of, of scalability when you're looking at projects, what are they doing to maybe stay decentralized but, but scale up, is this idea of off-chain uh, capabilities. And so one of the things is that Chris brought up was that some are second layer solutions. So saying, hey, our, our base layer foundation and, and the Aragon project is a good example of this, that they're saying, hey, our, 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 you really in the future should not see the base the base blockchain, you should not be interacting with. That should always be decentralized. And, and in essence, everything's gonna be built on top of that. And those are the layers that matter most. And so some of that will be settled uh, differently and, and, and maybe those second layer solutions will be more centralized. And so can you say, okay, my, our base layer is gonna be um, decentralized, but the other solutions are gonna be um, more centralized and, and they're gonna be batched, or they're gonna run through relayers, or they're gonna run through um, certain points of access. Um, and then they're recorded on chain. 
lots of uh, interesting conversations uh, to come around that um, of how do you solve uh, scalability while uh, remaining uh, centralized. But this idea that there are other options or Blockstack has a, a, a very unique approach about how it chooses to use um, application, application data that is stored on the blockchain and at the same time is that doesn't necessarily need to be, not everything has to be recorded on chain, not everything has to be uh, configured. So again, lots of solutions here that don't have to use um, limitations of the decentralized network, but are maybe interacting with it, are maybe using uh, the security of the blockchain uh, for, for identity or for login access, but for um, sending a tweet or for liking a, a, a post um, aren't being recorded on the blockchain. Yeah, so you brought up Blockstack. I have to mention, I love <laughs> the way that they're doing um, storage and it partially it's because it's not totally uh, decentralized or even distributed. Um, if you think of, uh, you know, you have a, a library of books um, and if you were to just take a picture of the index of each book, um, Blockstack is only saving the index to the blockchain. Uh, so they're, they're hashing every, you know, every file that you do uh, and saving just the hash of that file to the blockchain. So that way you can, you can know, okay, there's 10 files here or, uh, you know, you can validate that no one has gone in and messed with, you know, if you think of a book, rearrange the chapters or the way the cryptography works. Like you can know that no one has even changed any letter or any period without actually storing the full file on there. Um, and so it's a really great way to do it where nobody has access but you, and you can also validate on chain that nothing in your storage has changed, but you're not storing all of your files actually on the blockchain, which is just, it's a great way to do it. <laughs> so in a similar way, uh, we've talked about, okay, how do you stay uh, decentralized? And how do you scale up in, in such a way? But how do you also still make it secure? And so one of the first considerations is how to make it fault tolerant. So Chris, take, take us, what, is it, what do you mean by fault, being fault tolerant? Yeah, so as with all of these, there's a couple of different perspectives to look at. Uh, the one that first comes to my head is um, how you secure the network. And so Bitcoin is using uh, proof of work. So it's using these you know, computers that are running through uh, SHA-256, essentially like flipping coins to decide who gets to record the transactions, which is how they make validating transactions distributed and decentralized, right? So that, that's how Bitcoin is doing it. Um, other projects do uh, proof of stake. So I mentioned EOS is doing distributed proof of stake. So uh, there's many different ways uh, to even achieve uh, proof of stake. Um, or even uh, do proof of work. Uh, and so just when you're, when you're looking at the projects, you can say like, well, which of these uh, you know, fault tolerant systems are they using? And then the other factor to look at is how strong is the hash power? So if they're using um, you know, proof of work, how many people are actually doing the flipping of these coins? Um, and so when you look at coins that have forked off of Bitcoin, you know, like Bitcoin Diamond, Bitcoin Gold, Bitcoin Private, they're all using proof of work, but there's not a lot of people contributing to the security of the network. So those chains are extremely vulnerable to somebody attacking them. 
Um, so as you, you know, use this hero guiding heuristic that we've kind of put in place, what makes these projects different? Uh, you want to look at kind of the, the hash rate of the, that coin and just like what is their fault tolerant uh, method. And that to us brings up the idea of being ta attack resistant. When I initially heard about crypto projects, I would have thought about it, them being attack resistant from the perspective of being hacked or the code being manipulated or, you know, approach that way. Not what you just brought up where it's saying, hey, is there enough hash power? Is there enough competing power? Are there enough people on the network um, contributing to its running to be attack resistance from a brute force attack? In this case, what's called a 51% attack, where someone can gain control of the network or do a double, um, and you can explain more about the double spend um, issue. But where they had, can take enough competing power and have the resources, money uh, to, to throw at it to uh, be able to sec effectively, not necessarily take over the network, but to drive which chain uh, follows next. And that is becomes the, the guiding force of, hey, is proof of work gonna work uh, in the long run? Is proof of stake gonna be better? And so this idea of being tech resistant is really about figuring out what's the best way to secure and run the network. And so maybe explain a little bit more about what the double spend problem is and how that then relates to uh, being attack resistant. Sure, yeah. Uh, by no means am I an expert. I've just uh, happened to, to read a lot and uh, follow Twitter and uh, all those things. So uh, when you have uh, this distributed network of people all um, contributing to the uh, contributing to the hash power and uh, I think of it like they're, they're all flipping coins to decide who's going to record the next set of transactions. In Bitcoin, that happens every 10 minutes. Uh, if you have uh, more than 51% of the computer, or at least 51% of the computers that are online and validating transactions, uh, you get to decide which transactions get added to the next block. Um, and you'd get to decide that 51% of the time. And so uh, if let, let's just back this up to, like, let's say if there were only five miners uh, mining and, and flipping these coins, um, and I had uh, three of the five, uh, and I wanted to pay you $100, but I also wanted to pay my buddy Aaron $100, um, in one block, I could pay you, and then if the next block, if I added a transaction where instead of paying you, I actually paid Aaron that same Bitcoin, um, I could actually rewrite history just for that one block. Uh, and so, you know, within 10 minutes, you'd see, you know, $100 come in. And then the next 10 minutes, Aaron would also see uh, $100. Over time, after six transactions settled, one of you would see that that, that actually didn't get confirmed and the, the money would just go away. Um, but after six, they, they say that it's probabilistically confirmed, and so you, you're guaranteed to know um, that, that that's uh, accurate, at least on Bitcoin. Um, and, and so that's a way to, quote-unquote, double spend uh, one Bitcoin um, if you have enough hash power. It, but it takes either having one person that controls 51%, um, or that's what's called a, a Sybil attack, where somebody's pretending to, to be many different computers when in fact they actually control all of them. 
um, or if it was a mining pool, if one person that controlled the mining pool were to make that decision. Luckily, there's uh, at least five mining pools out there. Um, but it, still, it's a consideration that um, these networks are constantly being trialed and there are people that are um, trying to get the most financial incentive out of it. And if they can do that by breaking the rules, they're going to break the rules to get the most financial incentive. And so that, that's you know, one of our, our points here is that um, Bitcoin and the way that it was written is intended and so far has proved to make the alignment of the incentives in favor of following the rules. Uh, even though people are constantly proving that to be true by attacking it and losing money, uh, so far it's been proven true. But other, uh, other coins, other projects out there, um, it's still, uh, still to be found, like still to, to be determined. You know, the more decentralized the network is, the more secure it's going to be uh, in, in, this, in this fashion. Um, but then it brings up the scalability problems. So kind of again, reframing all this together, why does this matter? Um, how do you create a secure network and be fast? Or how do you be fast, but you probably are more centralized, but then you're probably then less secure. Um, so just this kind of like, you know, you're throwing all these pieces together. Um, so think about this, like, oh, why wouldn't everyone be, you know, very secure? It's like, well, there, there's a trade-offs. And one of the things I think is interesting to give a use case um, is um, exchanges have recently, for those less secure networks, increased the amount of confirmations that are needed for a transaction to go through so they can validate and ensure, yes, there is no 51% like, like, no attack happening and the people are trying to offload the, the coins, they double spend it onto the exchange and then, you know, then, then selling them. But then again, that reduces the speed of the network throughput for that for that chain, uh, or at least you know the validation of it. So again, the, this idea of the trade-offs um, of what you're competing with. Last couple aspects of, of security um, does actually go back to to what I brought up about um, can it be hacked or what if there's a bug? Um, is the evolving code and that, and that's actually a very positive uh, aspect of its security that. Um, the network has the ability to adapt or it has the ability to, um, again, if you have more coders, if you're decentralized from a, from a development perspective, you have more people checking the network, more people um, offering commits, more people reviewing those commits. And it's not just one person writing the code, validating it and, 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 and allowing things to go through. That again, if you have a decentralized network of, of, of even developers, the more secure you're gonna be or Ideally, the more the code is going to evolve and grow. And what I love about uh, this ecosystem, and uh, it's kind of a carryover from the open source software movement, uh, is that uh, all of this code is, uh, well, for most of these projects, it's available on GitHub. So you can see uh, the code. Now, even if you're not a, a programmer, you can see the number of commits, you can see the number of people, of unique contributors to a project. Again, that could be a, a civil attack where somebody could try and pretend like there were multiple people. Um, but uh, for each of these projects, and in fact, one of our, um, one of our uh, it, kind of people that we follow online, Jackson Palmer, 
started a website called Are We Decentralized Yet? where he tracked a lot of these metrics. And one of them was exactly what you're talking about, this evolving code, like how many commits have happened. And for his project, which was Dogecoin, uh, it's basically abandoned because no one has made any commits to it in two years. And so as I watch the price go up and down, I just go, guys, this, this was a joke coin. It still works, but it, it could be very vulnerable because no one has fixed any bugs or anything in the last two years. Um, and so I, I love that these things are visible on, on GitHub or even if you go to arewedecentralizedyet.com, you can see all of these metrics for top projects listed out um, and see that, that no project uh, scores A plus across all of these metrics because they're all trade-offs. You can tell how much we, we value uh, looking at these trade-offs, looking at these different aspects because almost every show, I think we uh, put arewedecentralizedyet.com <laughs> in the show notes. <laughs> we should be sponsored by, by that uh, nonprofit. <laughs> Um, but take us home here, Chris. What, what's this last aspect, um, this idea of security by default? And this idea of, are we really doing anything revolutionary here in the space? What, what, would make, what would make a blockchain project different from what we're used to in, in, in um, current banking, current social network, current data, current financial um, solutions in the world? Yeah, it, it's, is it secure by default? So, um, you know, Bitcoin is, is said to be pseudonymous because it's not quite anonymous. Uh, in fact, a lot of companies are out there that can you know, track where the coins go, um, you know, unless you do all sorts of crazy stuff. But um, from a user's perspective, uh, are, do they actually control everything or, or are they just handing it over to, to somebody else? Um, and so, uh, you know, when you're looking at um, I'm even thinking of MetaMask is a, a centralized solution kind of on top of Ethereum. And so uh, if you're not controlling your own keys, you know, if you're leaving your keys on a, an exchange, uh, not your keys, not your Bitcoin, right? Like it, it, it's, it's adding in a counterparty risk or you're trusting a third party uh, for your keys and for your money. Um, when you're using MetaMask, you're trusting somebody else to validate stuff. And so that's why it's important to, um, you know, to find out who is validating the transactions. Or in Bitcoin, you can just get get a, a cash hodl, and and for three hundred dollars, you can be validating your own transactions. Um, or for any of these other projects, uh, how many people are validating them, um, and and is it secure by default? So there's there's a lot there, but I, I think those two aspects, like the validation of the transactions, and just um, uh, is it secure by default? Yeah, I love that because it, again, going back to, is a project revolutionary? Is it different than what's currently there? Or does it require you to, you know, set up certain configurations? Or does it require you to take X amount of uh, decisions to be secure? Or I think of Zcash, although this is about this example of being uh, private versus non-private, it's, it's, in this case, it's not private by default. You actually have to take an extra step to be private. And so in this example, like, well, you talk about adoption, you talk about users, they're, you know, it's, it's, you're asking them to then be private you know, versus by default. And so I think the same of like um, Google Authenticator or signing into Facebook or, or, or you know, a lot of these are not secure by default. You're having to take extra steps 
to create security. And so ideally, if you have a secure blockchain project or a project that's gonna do something different than it's been done before, it would be secure by default where it's built into the mechanism, it's built into the user interface by which you would interact uh, with the network. So that takes it uh, home for us uh, as we wrap up our uh, season one. Great chat with you, Paul. Thanks, Chris. Cheers.